1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the new books network.
0: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Ferry. Welcome to another rebroadcast from the RTB archives. from Brandeis University and also our domestic spaces. Welcome to Recall This Book. Today, it's my great pleasure to invite a guest, Sean Hill. Welcome, Sean. And a co-host, Liz Bradfield from Brandeis University. Uh, And we're going to be having a conversation about Sean's poetry and related pathways and channels. First, I'd like to introduce Elizabeth Bradfield, our distinguished co-host for today. Liz is the author of several books of poetry, including her most recent book, Theorem in collaboration with the artist Antonio Contro. She's the founder and editor-in-chief of Broadsided Press, a monthly broadside publisher, and she teaches poetry at Brandeis. So, just to introduce Sean to you, um, he's the author of two poetry collections: Dangerous Goods, which was awarded the Minnesota Book Award in Poetry from 2014, and Blood Ties and Brown Liquor, named one of the 10 books all Georgians should read in 2015. I presume that's the state of Georgia, not the nation, although I'm sure the people in the nation of Georgia should also read it. He's received numerous awards, including fellowships from Cave Canem, the Region 2 Arts Council, Minnesota State Arts Board, Jerome Foundation, and many other honors. He's served as the director of the Minnesota Northwoods Writers Conference at Bemidji State University. Uh, and he's also a consulting editor at Broadside Press, a monthly broadside publisher. So we thought it would be great, Sean, if we might start off by having you read a poem.
1: Okay, I would love to. Um, I was kind of torn between which poems to read. The couple picked out, I think I'm gonna read a new poem, one that's not in a book yet, but hopefully will be soon. Um, the title is Musica Universalis in Fairbanks. Musica Universalis in Fairbanks. Each night, this 21st century frontier town settles enough for me to hear the thumb and hiss in my ears, my tinnitus, which I choose to think of as the harmony of my firmament. All so far away, like the whoosh and the hiss of Nana's gas heater that warmed the winter chilled bedroom in georgia while she got the skillet sizzling with country cured ham in the kitchen my refrigerator occasionally wakes this hour to clear its throat and rumble on over the sounds in my ears and some nights i get out of bed to go stand under the generosity of stars here I've decided that must be the collective noun for all the stars in one's gaze, as it must also be for any number of scars. The way we refer to a flock of starlings as a murmuration. I stand there and use my hand to shade my eyes from the streetlights to better see the stars our new light competes with the old the way the clamor of fleets in the age after sails is said to interfere with the sounds of whales here i sometimes see the aurora borealis silent which seems impossible like the end of the world for what we know of light in the sky lightning and is often not far off companion, Thunder, seems to say something will always follow. Some say the Northern likes sizzle, an impossibility, a synesthetic weaving of the senses exalting this light, or a lark like the bird, which we call an exaltation when in number is great or small. More, then a handful, the way a friend used to count lovers when we were younger, told me he was on to the second hand. Love while a lark still handled carefully. In those days, I should drive out of town to view these lights against the sky black as a raven. They often fly in pairs or groups. A conspiracy, a storytelling and unkindness of ravens.
2: It's so great to hear a new poem from you, Sean. And and I I don't know, what I always love about your poems is the way, the way that they uh, interweave in conversation with themselves, the way that they evolve, <laughs> the way that they morph from one thing into another uh, and reconnect and offer these surprising juxtapositions. Um, the way, for example, we went from the lark to the hand um, to the raven. I just, yeah, it's such beautiful work. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's what the language offers. And, you know, I, I don't know, I, I keep sort of trying to think about how we think about um, ecosystems and the, the planet um, mm-hmm. and the things the things that get moved around. And you're, you're sort of taking me away, like thinking about um, how we think about things, like
2: mm-hmm.
1: the, the, the house sparrow. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Liz, but that is also a non native species, right?
2: That's right, yeah.
1: Right. And, you know, we don't think about them generally the same way as we think about star- sparrows. At least they don't get sort of broadly in the culture the same kind of bad rap. And actually, right now, I have some house sparrows nesting in a birdhouse. Mm-hmm. Um, on our garage I saw the starlings like my wife was like oh there's a little a cute little brown bird out there I was like it's some non-native invasive species um <laughs> right. but also like it is a cute little brown bird um and then the starlings were coming around like trying to peek and see what's happening in there and it's like this moment of like well how do I think about the starlings in this moment right um mm-hmm. they're just they're trying to get by um and yeah, I, I, I'm kind of curious. Like, I don't have a poem about the house sparrow, but I'm like that feels like a space to like think about like how we um, think about other and othering each other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so,
2: and, and I think this is in your poems too. But and of movement and who gets to move and what's the impetus to move? Um, you know, in some in some cases of animals shifting ranges. Uh, it's not through the deliberate introduction of something like it was with the starlings. Uh, sometimes it's range expansion in relation to climate change, so right. that's kind of tied to us. I don't know. It's right. yeah that idea of migration, shifting patterns, yeah. where where it's natural big air quotes (laughs) and where and where it's unnatural and then in your work how much that ties to human movements as well which is
1: super important to me yeah you like you're there's the eruption of of pine siskins like this year right um and we get those things that happen every now and again and what does that have to do with like our action like climate change that we we have had some hand in right um yeah th- those those are, are questions I, I i worry not necessarily on the page but they're in my head like a lot of the time mm-hmm. um, and yeah who gets to move
2: i mean can you talk a little bit about that dear america letter
1: yeah um i i was was asked to take part of this epistolary project right like, Write a letter to America. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, and it actually it came out of them like, oh, we like we really like these postcard poems. Can you write something like that? And I I, I was like, maybe. Let me see. And and no, I couldn't. I, I think I had <laughs> too much t- space that I needed to fill, and they, like I, it was too big. Like writing a postcard to America didn't seem doable to me in the time. And um, I had this trip coming up with my dad, and so it, I I felt like that was it gave me the opportunity to think and, and it was sort of taking notes about our travel. Um and travel for me it does it gives me perspective to sort of reflect and sort of pull back and sort of see where where I am um, in like physical space but also in political space. Um, so the the essay is is about you know driving like four days across Canada with my dad, which was a was once in a lifetime trip. I don't know that we've ever spent four days together. Just the two of us, mm-hmm. like, you know, in our lives before that. Um, and I've always had problems with border crossings. <laughs> and then, and just like, then also we talk about having problems with border crossings. You have to think about what a border is. Um, mm-hmm and just sort of the physically be on, like stand on the border, the straddle the, the, these, you know, the line that bisects the, you know, demarcates the nations. Um, it just made me think about like, what is it that is um, being kept on either side of the line? Um, and also it just like, I, I, writing an, an essay that's a travel log, I got to like, you know, Focus on nature and scenery and those things. Um, so it just—it was really kind of a cool project that felt like, you know, I I could get at these, you know, ways in which um, our lives are are bounded. And I think there like there were these moments in it with my father who was born and raised in, in Milledgeville, Georgia, and spent much of his life there. Um, sort of getting him. As far away from Millersville as i think he'd ever been um and taking this slow trip with me um like allowed him to see some things and allowed me to see some things about him and you know it was ask you know in the car for four days and to sort of ask questions about like how his life had been um bounded um he was born in the 40s late 40s and so like he grew up with Jim Crow. And so I, I, I wanted to ask about that, but I didn't want to ask too directly about that. So I just, I, I asked this question about um, what was the big change in your life, that your lifetime that, that you know, right. this sort of societal shift, this thing had happened. And um, and there are lots of them. And so he's like, you know, cell phone, radio, communication. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that, dad. Like there, there was a period when like, you were not an equal citizen and then you, you are. And he's like, oh yeah, that, that happened too. Hmm. Um, And so like sort of thinking about ways in which we sort of normalize things, internalize things and how we do view our lives was kind of interesting for me. Um, Yeah.
0: I just, there's, there's something that I thought was really intriguing about that essay because it sort of had the form of a, you know, a certain kind of genre, right? right? Of this sort of travel narrative and reflection, but it was doubled because it was you and your father and there are the, these moments in it. And that was one of them that you just described where sort of your expectation of what he's gonna say is kind of confounded um, and then kind of doubles back and you sort of, you know, have more conversation about it. But but there's all these moments like the scene in the motel where, I mean, I'm describing it as a scene cause it has a sort of cinematic quality, but, um, where your responses and his responses are kind of set side by side and that he, but not necessarily always in the same way that certain things that feel like threats to him, don't to you and then do. And that also seemed really important about to put in a letter about America, right? Uh, From outside of America. and I, I just thought that was really fascinating.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, that's part of the, the, the work, too. I'm, I'm thinking about ways in which our lives are bounded by our lifetimes and, and you know, the our the, our context, right? Like, you know, my self is different from his self. My experience was different. Yeah. And part of that had to do with, like, how they raised me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think... I was listening to, I listen to too, too much radio sometimes. I was listening to a show and they were talking about sort of the immigrant experience and the first generation, second generation and how like parents are trying to shape the, the life of the child, like what they tell the child and what they don't. And like my parents didn't really talk too directly about um, segregation. I think mm-hmm. they didn't really want to like, I think burden me maybe with that. And Mm -hmm. so I grew up in a recently desegregated South, not really understanding how it had affected them. Right.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And in a a direct way, I mean, I could see it on like the edges of it and like the way that they were around white people and how they observed me with white people um, and what they sort of like expected to happen and how they were like encouraging of like, oh, we go talk to these people. Um, But yeah, it's, yeah, it's, that fascinates me, and also because now I have a son, I'm like thinking about like how his world, his you know America, is going to be different from my America. I don't know exactly how, mm-hmm. but it, I mean, it, it will probably be. It has to be. It can't be. You know, that's the generational bounding of our lives, right? Right. Um. So yeah, those those things sort of sort. Of, I mean, the, and I that's part of the essay too, that I don't really sort of get at too much, but it's, it's there. I think there's like a follow-up essay actually they're working okay. on that sort of touches yeah. on those things, but like, yeah, like right. how do we.
0: Let's, but it's, yeah, it seems like it's in there and it's sort of not only that your past and his past are different, but that that makes your presence different too. Right. Right. You're on two different trips. Right. Because of that. Even though you're
1: also on the same trip, right, 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 and you know, and also, yeah, yeah it's two different trips because of the the past, but also, I guess this is you know, technically speaking, speaking part of the past. But like, you know, I traveled much more than he had. I'd been to Canada. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I actually I took them, my dad and my mom, to Canada once. So we lived up in Northern Minnesota and my mom was like, I wanna to go to Canada. And so they came up to her visit and we went across the border and, and like spent the night in, in Winnipeg. And I think it was interesting and strange. They had Indian food for the first time in their lives mm-hmm. last time. Um, <laughs> and as soon as we got back across the border, my dad, we stopped at a cafe, um, as they say in Minnesota, cafe. And um, my dad was like trying to order Southern food I was like, they don't like. There was a waitress. It was her first day on the job, and and she she was like, I don't understand sweet tea. I don't know what you're talking about. Like this is <laughs> like way northern Minnesota, and she's just like, I. What is what do you, she had to call the manager over to sort of. I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah.
0: Um, Moments with one's parents. <laughs>
2: yeah. But I wanted to ask you about influence in your work or other books and writers that have shaped you uh, in the ways that you've approached some of these um, poems that we've talked about today or that feel like they're a current kind of feeding your practice. Um, Yeah, who would they be?
1: Um, There's this book by C.S. Giscombe. titled Into and Out of Dislocation. Giscombe's known as a poet, but this is kind of a memoir, book of prose, um, also travelogue too. And I I got this book right before I moved to Northern Minnesota, and there's just like some of the parallels um, and ways of thinking that he was doing in this book influenced dangerous goods. Um, You know, like one of the sort of things is just like he was into riding his bicycle and he had these rules for riding his bike and so i was like i'm gonna ride my bike i need to ride my bike i need to get out and so it was like it got me out got me out of nature and like you know on these trails um but he was in that book he was looking for um a possible ancestor um, so he talks about sort of his growing up um growing up african-american um also losing an arm at a young age to an accident. Um, there's all these things that are happening, but at some point he's like, you know, he's as an adult, as a writer, um, thinking about, um, you know, a project. He comes, he finds this guy, John Giscom, who was a Jamaican um, pioneer in BC. So a Jamaican in British Columbia who, mm-hmm. like, it's like, you know, making making a name for himself, and there's the, like their landmarks named for this guy. And he's like, maybe this is an ancestor. I,
2: I know him. I know Giscombe because of Giscombe Road, the the book of poems he wrote about this investigation. And now I'm super curious to read the prose as a follow up and what kind of um, how that refracts the poetry.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, you 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 will love it. I think. Um, yeah, and so him thinking about Giscom, John Giskum, it sort of got me in the mind of thinking about um, the people that come before, right? I think there's a way in which um, I do that work sort of in a community in Blood Ties and Brown Liquor. And I think about family and, and, and try to do that, some of that work. But um, moving to Bemidji, Minnesota, I was like, who's who was here before me and I you was know, just kind of I think I was thinking actually just musing about it without thinking about it too hard the time and this kind of happenstance came across mentioned um in a flyer of, of a lecture about this guy named George Bonga, who was an afro voyageur. voyager hmm. so, like that's like three things right there right um, or or one thing right um and I was really excited about him, and I couldn't wait the two weeks for the lecture. So I, I went to the Historical Society in Bemidji, Minnesota, and um, was like, I, "I need whatever information you guys have on George Bonga." They're like, "We don't know this guy, but we have a file on this other guy. Since you're interested in African Americans, <laughs> you know, in, in Bemidji history, and so yeah, I, that's they introduced me to this guy, Charles um, W. Scrutchen. Who was a lawyer who moved to Bemidji in 1898-99. I love that stretching poem. <laughs> Thank you and so yeah at, at some point for me it, it, like him looking for her ancestors made me think about like thinking about the ancestors right like made me think that I need to like figure out who was here before me as a way to see how I fit um and it's kind of a comfort too. And I, I feel like now I, that's part of my project is understanding the narrative. Because you know, they, you know, we talk about representation a lot, like, oh, you need to see people like you to think about how to, you know, how to be. And I think that's there's truth in that. And so like me looking to see like, okay, these are people who are who are in some way like me, um, who are here. I'm not the first and i don't i don't need to be the first you know it's actually really good to know that i'm not the first
2: lonely to be the first right
1: Hmm?
0: a little lonely
1: to be the first i mean it's lonely enough being the only right or one of the few (laughs) but But mm -hmm. like to sort of reclaim the 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 narrative and like well we we were here um i think is important Mm -hmm. yeah
0: Mm
1: -hmm. yeah and sort of in terms of who represents me and thinking about like because of the way race is constructed in this country i am a black man and, and I identify that way and so I did, when I identify other black people um, who who've preceded me in a space in a place it's, it's it's comforting it's like i I'm like i I know I can be here hmm. um. I don't know if everyone else knows I can be here, but I know I can be here. <laughs> Thanks.
0: Okay.
1: So, yeah, and that's kind of the project that I'm working on now is thinking about that.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I know your new writing is taking you back to Georgia as well and into history. Um, mm-hmm. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so. The Georgia history I'm looking at is actually around the governor's mansion um, as a place, but also the administration of uh, Joseph Emerson Brown, who was the governor of Georgia um, right before and during the Civil War. So he was elected and and came into office in uh, 1858 and just kind of was there through the Civil War. and I'm just I'm interested in, in someone governing during that period, and also the fact that um, there were black lives that were part of that administration um, at the time. The governor's mansion there were there was no household staff that was like a permanent staff part of the governor's mansion. Um, there wasn't money appropriated for that. Um, the governors brought their slaves with them to serve them and be the servants of the governor's mansion. Um, things came up, you know, life happens. And I, but I was like, I'm not gonna leave this project because it feels, yeah, yeah, more relevant, differently relevant, uh, like in this way, which, um, you know, once Trump was elected, I was like, okay, now we have a different way to think about this. And then January 6th shifted it again because you know, in, in um, I guess, 2019, I think it was, I was doing more research on this project. I was like, oh, I gotta go find these things. I need to find, so there are some, some pieces I really want to dig around and look for. And in that digging, more things came up and I found um, Governor Brown's letter in which he um, sort of, because all of the Confederates had to be pardoned, and they had to say make this oath that they' want, they wouldn't commit treason again and, and like they were traitors, and all like oh, there's paperwork, and I like I have like copies and photographs of the paperwork, and I was like, okay, this is gonna work its way in somehow because it like it felt important. And then like you know January sixth happens like I, you know a year and a half later, and I'm like, okay. I, I really need to get this thing out. <laughs> um, yeah,
0: before yeah. more sedition happens.
1: Right, right, right. Um, so yeah, you know th- those those things like um, like you, these moments you have in the in the in the archives in the library with the research. You're like, oh yes, yes. And then like there's this other energy that is needed to make something of that. And I was like, oh yeah, okay, you know, one of these days, you know. And I was thinking about. Th- that project and the civil war um, is also like one sort of step toward my exploration of, um, you know, westward migration, you know, so I'm interested in like the, we have, we have a lot about the great migration to the north, but I'm like, I'm, there's people, black folk went west too. And so mm-hmm. um, that's another part of the project um, thinking about black people in the west mm. um post-civil war yeah. Um, mm-hmm. so yeah and um, i and i'm in the west so again it's like this idea of like trying to figure out like what are the parallels where's the representation who were the people how did they do it
2: bodies in space and time
1: bodies in space and time yeah, yeah. so um i'm supposed to be writing poems about um montana and um history black folk in montana history that's, mm. that's my next project but i also have other places i want to write about in the west um and you know there's captain healy that's another strand another thread of the the westward research um michael michael a healy michael augustine healy um was uh, captain of the revenue cutters in the um sort of the federal authority in Alaska um, during the last couple of decades of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. But he was born to an Irish immigrant father who was a planter and one of his father's slaves who his father seemed to take as his common law wife. Um, and they had 10 children together, all of which he's, he sent north to, to be um, out of slavery. Um, mm-hmm. But he was born in 1839, you know, and, and, not, and not too far from where I was born, you know. And so I was sort of thinking about, about that, like, oh, this guy um, was born a, a county over, um, had, had this trajectory. He ended up in, in Alaska and, and being a, um, a, famous, a famous hero of the time to town's some named after him <laughs> Towns named after him yeah town's <laughs> name like yeah that's how he was introduced to me actually because huh. i i have a question i ask when i go places like what are the where are the books about black people is there a plaque about black people that are here what like tell me about the black people who were here <laughs> mm-hmm. i'm never like i never walk in thinking i'm, I'm the first black person so i was like yeah, right. there has to be somebody mm-hmm. and the woman's like well captain healy was black at the the gift shop at denali Mm -hmm. Um, she's like, what are you, who she's like, you know, the town, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay.
2: (laughs) For those, for people who don't know, Healy is a, is the town that's just adjacent to, to Denali national park. Um, it's a very, very small town. It's a, um, a lot of people work in the park. It's a coal, coal mining town. Mm -hmm. Also, um, there's a big Mm -hmm. coal operation there, but, um, right, right smack dab in the middle of South central Alaska. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, I started digging and I was like, oh, we're like neighbors across centuries, kind of like, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: So we do have a stage of uh, many episodes where we talk about recallable books. So books that, that feel connected to the conversation uh, that we've been having and, and characteristically for me, one has come up in my mind in the course of our conversation. So uh, maybe I'll just start off and then hear from you guys. I'm, it, Um, this whole questions of movements of things that are human and more than human. And also the, the central North of the country uh, makes me think of a book by Laureen Niedeker called Lake Superior, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the account of a, of a trip that, that she took with her husband um, to Lake Superior. And it's, it's about a lot of it is about the rocks, which I'm very into rocks. So, um, Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, the rocks that also are now the bones of humans, the division between the rocks and the water and the humans is not where we always imagine it to be or, or it, isn't as, it isn't as firm as we imagine it to be. And that's really, um, and, and uh, in a sense, I see that in some of your poems and in our conversation. Not, there's not so many rocks, but there's lots of birds, and there's also and stars, and and senses, and mountains, and and so that's that's where where that took me. Huh. Um, so uh, Sean, do you want to tell us a recallable book?
1: Um, Invisible City by um, Italo Calvino. <laughs> I, I I'm thinking about him like we didn't really talk about cities so much, but I mean it's part of it. But like in that book, like so. Um, Kublai Khan is being reported to from from Marco Polo about like the empire and different cities and sort of you get these like little um, dispatches, like little like here's what this city is like and they're really kind of very sensory but also kind of abstract like ends up like, I read that book and it makes me think about the city and what cities are in this, um, in what feels like a useful way you know, like that cities are things that aren't just always and just happened. Or if they do, there is also, there is some design in them. Like, you know, nothing really just happens. Um, and so, and, and then how you can have some perspective on what is happening in a space, like in a, in, in a community. Um, what What is the community? And so, like, like, I don't know. Like, I've, I've had these thoughts when I've gone other places, and I think that book kind of helps me think about it. Like, when I, um, what used to be Barrow, now um, um Barrow, Alaska, now Utqiaqvik, Alaska. Yeah. I landed there and one of the first things someone told me, like in the tour, because when you land there, if someone's picking you up, they're like, you're gonna get four tours of this place, at least four tours. Um, and they're like, well, you know, just pointing out places. And it was sort of like an igloo is the word for basically for domicile. So everybody lives in the igloos, whatever they look like. But then I was like, thinking about like, why did they look the way they look, right? Like, what is this imposition that, um, feels more out of place than what was here before, which seemed like part of dealing with the environment and the ways in which we don't deal with our environments anymore. You know, um, at some point we're just like, no, we're just bringing in this colonial sense of what a city should look like and feel like and what the houses should be. I mean, I live in, you know, a really nice sort of big Victorian house, but I don't know why it's in Montana. Mm -hmm. I like it, shouldn't necessarily be here though um so yeah that that book makes me think about cities and the things we get up to as a species um, when we get together in I think interesting ways
0: good
1: thanks
0: uh
2: Liz well I, I'm a little torn I've got a couple of books I'm recalling <laughs> um I guess the first is the book Plain Water by Ann Carson the poet and scholar in, in part because it's about movement and journeying it's about um I'm assuming it's autobiographical, -autobiographical, semi-autobiographical, about her trek along uh, the Camino Real and her conversations over time. And um, as with a lot of her work, it's strange and cerebral and then also um, kind of oddly passionate. And, And so when I think about your work, Sean, and the way that, that travel is also so full of desire often, uh, and movement can be full of desire, whether it's like a, an intimate romantic desire or just uh, curiosity and yearning. Um, so I think, I, I think about her book, also how it references and reaches to pull in all this different stuff. Um, she's largely using um, the Haibun the form. In, in that book which is a form I know you've used Sean in fact I learned of the form from you so um, so I'm thinking about that book and I'm also weirdly was thinking a little bit about the ice shirt that novel have you read that Sean by William mm-hmm. Bowman it's such a weird book I don't know I don't know that it's a perfect book it's strange it's about um, it's about movement from Europe into um. Greenland in particular, and kind of looking at Vikings and encountering uh, Inuit uh, in Greenland and Canada. It's um, it's a strange, troubling royal of a book that gets a little fantastical and surreal. And I don't know why that one's coming to mind, um, but I think something about encounters and movement and and an openness toward not quite a magical realism, but uh, a strangeness that wants us to step out of
0: ordinary time. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, Well, I think uh, our time has come uh, to say uh, thank you very much to Sean um, for joining us and for such a great conversation.
2: Yeah, Sean, thank you. You're so generous with your thought and time, and I wish we'd gotten to hear more poems, but I'm glad we got one poem from you. Yes,
0: yes. And a a, a new one, too, is very exciting. Thank you. And uh, I am going to tell our listeners about Recall This Book. Recall This Book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It is recorded by Plotz, Ferry, and a cadre of other colleagues, including today our co-host, Elizabeth Bradfield, uh, who are located in the Boston area and beyond. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy called Fly Away. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen, and production assistance, including website design and social media, is done by Nye Kim. We are grateful to Mark DeLillo for his consultation on tech matters, and we appreciate the support of university librarian Matthew Sheehy and Dean Dorothy Hodgson, and of the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly or contact us via social media and our website. If you enjoyed today's show, please write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You may be interested in checking out past episodes such as Lisa Dillman on translation and David Ferry and Roger Reeves on The Underworld in Poetry. Thanks to all of you, and we'll see you next time.